0: Listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co host, Darren. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing Black Sabbath's seventh album, Technical Ecstasy. The album was released on September 25th, 1976, and it found the band continuing in the more experimental styles that they had explored on the few previous albums. The album was recorded in Miami at Criteria Studios, and the job of producing the album fell on Tony Iommi, as no one else in the band wanted to take on the task. Much to Tony's dismay, he would find himself spending long hours in the studio while the other band members were catching rays on the beach. Not everything was sunny, though, as the band was starting to show their first signs of cracking. Drug use and endless legal battles had taken their toll on the band, and Ozzy would begin to even contemplate leaving the group, even going so far as to print a T-shirt with his then imaginary band name of Blizzard of Oz printed on it. The unique cover art would be done by the legendary Hypnosis and would depict two robots passing on an escalator engaging in a, shall we say, romantic encounter or technical ecstasy. Unfortunately, the album would be viewed as a disappointment in the band's eyes as they struggled to find their place in the new changing musical landscape of punk and new wave. Also, the fatigue from the rock and roll lifestyle was beginning to take its toll. But even though history has painted the album with an unfavorable brush, for the hardcore Sabbath fans, there are many gems to be found on this album. Side one starts with the driving Backstreet Kids, then the dark ballad, You Won't Change Me, followed by the Bill Ward sung It's All Right and finishing with The Driving Gypsy. Side 2 would contain the heavy funk of all moving parts Stand Still, the Boogie Blues number Rock and Roll Doctor, the mournful ballad She's Gone and finishing off the album, the Tony Iommi live showcase for years to come Dirty Women. The band would also be joined on the album by Gerald Jez Woodruff on keyboards, and his playing would figure strongly on many of the songs on the album. The Technical Ecstasy Tour would begin in Tulsa on October 22nd, 1976 and end on April 22nd, 1977 in Gothenburg, Sweden. Support acts for the tour would come from KISS and ACDC, amongst others. ACDC were touring for their electrifying album, Let There Be Rock, but they would be dropped from the tour early after an altercation between Malcolm Young and Geezer ended in in flying fists. Songs from the album played on this tour were All Moving Parts, Gypsy, Rock and Roll Doctor, and Dirty Women. All right, so Darren, this is an episode both of us have been waiting for, one that I know you have especially been waiting for because Darren is quite the supporter of uh, technical ecstasy. He, he is a, a strong, strong believer in, in technical ecstasy, as am I. So we've both been waiting for this episode because this is an album that, you know, kind of we talked about this at the end of the last episode. This, this is kind of after Sabotage, maybe even a little bit earlier for some people, where some of the casual fans have gotten off the boat by this point, gotten off the bandwagon, if you will. So, uh, you know, this is this is an album that there are some people out there that don't care for this record, but uh, we love it. So, Darren, what were what were your early memories of Technical see What are your thoughts on this album? So.
1: I got Sabbath, Blaze Sabbath and Technical Ecstasy at the same time. And. Uh, the two albums to me sounded very complementary to one another in a sense and, and i guess it, it it makes sense because sabbath bloody sabbath was where they started to introduce the strings and the keys and then they kind of got away from that on sabotage although there was some orchestrated parts on on super czar and there was some more elaborate <clears throat> production things happening but we have to take that out of the equation for me at this point, because I didn't get sabotage until after I got technical ecstasy so for me it was Sabbath bloody Sabbath and technical ecstasy and the introduction of. Uh, keys and strings on Sabbath bloody Sabbath flowed pretty much seamlessly into technical ecstasy for me so, whereas there was a bit of a stigma, I think. On uh, the last two albums with Ozzy, Technical Ecstasy, and Never Say Die, for me, I thought it was great. I connected with the songs. Um, I love the atmosphere that a lot of the songs build up. Um, Backstreet Kids, man, that's a great riff. Um, It's kind of an autobiographical song in a sense where, you know, it's just like, this is who we are, and we're rocking, and kind of a departure from previous things where they seem to be weighted down by social uh, issues and um, environmental things and just this is more of like, a, and, and I guess a lot of it had to do with where they were at that time but but for me, it, this was an easier album for me to digest at 11 or 12, because it was more straightforward and there's a lot of melody. I, I I liked the production value of it. It was really an easy album for me to wrap my head around and take to instantly. And, and I did same as I did with, with Sabbath bloody Sabbath. So these two albums really made an impact. And, and, and in some ways I think I prefer technical ecstasy because I like the variety in the material, not that there isn't Sabbath bloody Sabbath, but there's definitely a more profound uh, difference in the songs on technical ecstasy I mean you have like she's gone which is a full-on melancholy ballad and then you have it's all right the Bill Ward song which is like um, kind of I don't know how you would describe it I I guess folkish in a way sort of happy and then you have rock and roll doctor which is an upbeat party kind of a song and and, and these three songs, you would, there was no indication that they were working up to this. They, they, here they were on this album, and I think that's what p- puts a lot of people off. It, it, it's such a different, a different type of album from anything that that preceded it. Uh, but for me, in the way that I was buying Sabbath albums and the way that I was taking them all in, uh, I didn't have any issue with it. Had I been there from the beginning and bought the first album, and the second, and so on and so on and work my way after sabotage to technical ecstasy, maybe I would have been disappointed. But for me, in the way that I first, my first exposure to it, I loved it. I still do. I have a, a Facebook page, the Technical Ecstasy Appreciation <laughs> Society. <laughs> Darren is the president
0: of the technical- the
1: President and CEO. We, we, hey man, we're like 50 members strong.
0: T E A S the technical ecstasy appreciation Society. Yep, there you go. Uh, but I, I, you know, I love that. I'll leave a link down below. You can send your dues, and, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Darren will decide if you're worthy of inclusion into this very secretive, inclusive group. There's a questionnaire you have to fill out. You have to be approved. Um, but anyway, you have to check your background and everything.
1: And... <laughs> yeah, there's some questions that it, it's you have to answer. It, it's kind of it's not easy to get into. But anyway. that era itself is also really cool and you know um one of the things that i think i that resonated for me as a kid was and, and i've talked about this before and with black sabbath the music the in the imagery that it conjures up was always like you know 70s late 60s early 70s horror and there's a lot of that in spite of the fact that you wouldn't get that impression from the album cover which seemed very modern but there is a lot of atmosphere and a kind of a cinematic aspect to some of these songs, like Gypsy in particular, uh, that was really reminiscent or reminded me a lot of like the Hammer films. And what's interesting is their stage set, and I don't want to like get into everything at one time, but their stage set had kind of like a castle uh, motif where it had a, a chandelier that came down with like wood carvings and then there was a background that had like a wood it looked like the inside of a castle so apparently someone else must have been on the same wavelength because that that was what their stage show was was this gothic looking castle this this hammer horror setting but beyond that I mean that that was really cool that the atmosphere that they built for themselves on stage but the way they look was was really cool that was when the ozzy was wearing like in this full like regalia with the black black shirt with the white fringe and the peace sign and and you know really long hair it was like the band themselves looked in spite of the fact that everybody thinks that this is them getting away from the classic period of black sabbath for me they looked about as classic i mean when i want the iconic look of Black Sabbath was in and around this era, say 75, 76. So that's another thing I like about it. It's a definitely a an album, a time period that uh, that I really connect with.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you say, you know, you went from Sabbath Bloody Sabbath to technical ecstasy. I could see how those two albums kind of would feel like maybe Technical Ecstasy would have followed Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. And then because Sabotage is a little bit more, even though it does have things like the choir we mentioned on it, Am I Going Insane Radio, which is a little experimental, but Sabotage was such a heavy kind of raw album at times. And whereas Technical Ecstasy and uh, Sabotage was very raw. I think if I said that right. And Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and Technical Ecstasy have a little bit more going on with the strings and the keyboards and stuff like that. But I, at this point, I had had all the previous Sabbath albums. So the only thing left I had to get was Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die. And I have a distinct memory that Technical Ecstasy, I I saw it. I saw the cassette. This was something something else interesting. You didn't see Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die in the stores the same way you saw Paranoid or even the even the first album. You know, I, I, I you see those in any record store I walked into. You would see Paranoid, but Technical Ecstasy was it was kind of like I hadn't re- I knew it was out there, but I had never really seen it. Then I saw it in the store, but I, I wasn't able to get it. I didn't have the money or whatever the deal was. So I was waiting. I knew it was there. I think I knew, okay, my parents they it was a long drive to get to the mall where the nearest record store was. So there was probably, all right, well, we'll go to the, to the mall in three weeks or something like that. And I knew, all right, I've got my, my lawn mowing money saved. I I I and it was like all I thought about for the weeks leading up to this trip to the mall was like, I know exactly where it is in the store. <laughs> I, I am I'm, I'm on this I and I, I remember looking at the cover and and the, the song titles and I was just I just couldn't wait to get it because at this point, as I mentioned, really starting with Sabbath bloody Sabbath I was just I was all in on black Sabbath I was. Ozzy's Blizzard and Diary wow. and Mark at the Moon, where I was into them, I was Heaven and Hell, Mob Rules, get, just getting all this stuff at, at the time. And I was just, I was just so into it. And the interesting thing, and you sort of alluded to this, <clears throat> back then, I, okay, it was, you know, my age here, this was way before the internet, I lived in a pretty rural secluded place. I knew, knew no one that liked Black Sabbath. I had friends that liked Iron Man, their war pigs. I knew no one that like, did like them beyond hearing one or two songs on the radio. I didn't have an older brother or something that could tell me about Black Sabbath. So I knew nothing about the band. So I took everything at its, at its face value, how I interpreted it. There was nobody telling me, oh yeah, Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die, those are, like not, those are not the good albums from, from the Ozzy era. No. Um, you know, whereas today, if, if you're interested in a band and you go and you go online and you're reading reviews, you're even listening with, even Sabbath talks down on Technical Ecstasy, And and that can put something in your your head. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Even hear it. And as a young kid, I had nothing. I no one had. I had no preconceived notions. I wasn't expecting. I didn't know what to expect going into it. So I went into it, and went with a completely open mind. And when I heard it, it sounds silly, but at that age, I mean, I think as time went on, I was able to separate these albums a little bit better in my head but the 12 year old me I like technical ecstasy as much as everything that had come before it they were all on equal footing with me I love them all Uh, and it it didn't it wasn't until I got on the internet years later where I started reading and, and people sort of like not caring for that album as much yeah. as the other ones that I, I, I started to realize, wow. Okay. And I, you know, maybe I was conscious that paranoid you heard war pigs and iron man and fairies wear boots on the radio. And, uh, but uh, to me it was just, a, it was another Sabbath album. And it was another Sabbath album that I, that I really loved. And, yeah. um, you know, okay. I'm, I'm going to go off on a, on a, on a thing here. So everybody out there, grab your beverage, sit back, relax. <laughs> I have a theory about things, things like this, that certain albums take on a uh, take on a persona, a life, a an image that. It's through history, they've been painted a certain way. And it's almost like they take on this identity because people have talked about it in such a way for so long. And part of the thing, and that's, I think, what has happened to Technical Ecstasy, the band talks down on it. The band was going through very difficult times. It was a difficult album to make. It wasn't any kind of like huge blockbuster seller for them. So, the album has taken on a negative tone, and history then sort of jumps on this bandwagon and it just gets written off as like the forgotten Sabbath album, this and Never Say Die. Darren and I have, we've both, uh, you know, sh- shared our anger in when it was years ago when we started seeing this t shirt popping up, You Can Only Trust Yourself, in the first six Black Sabbath albums. And we were like, <laughs> What? (laughs) Where did that come from? Yeah, you can trust every Black Sabbath album. But here's the the thing that I want people to think about. And here's, here's, again, this is how albums take on an identity and sometimes an unfair identity. I'm gonna make a comparison here to KISS and KISS's Destroyer album. KISS, uh, Bob Ezrin produced Destroyer. And when you listen to KISS talk about Destroyer, They talk about how it was a very difficult album to make. Bob Ezrin was a taskmaster. He had them in the studio, redoing things, playing things multiple times, running it like a drill sergeant, even to the point that Ace Frehley didn't even play all the guitars on some of the songs on that album. And it was in some ways, maybe the album that started pushing Ace out out of the band. But on Destroyer, Kiss has a massive, their biggest hit with the Peter Criss drummer sung song, Beth. Mm-hmm. Beth becomes a massive hit. Thus, the album sells a ton. Because Beth was such a huge hit, whatever single they put out after Beth, whatever it was tomorrow and tonight or who, whatever it was, I'm sure sold well. It was Detroit Rock City, I think. Okay. I'm sure that sold well. And because of Destroyer, that single then pushed that album to multi-platinum. Because of that, Rock and Roll Over, which is a great album, that sold well. They could, No matter what they put out after Destroyer, it would have sold pretty good because Destroyer was such a big, big hit. So they were now on everyone's radar. Exactly. Now, the comparison to Black Sabbath, Sabbath. Technical Ecstasy, very difficult album for them to make for different reasons, drug use, fatigue, uh, legal battles. But imagine if It's All Right had become a number one single for the band. You see the comparison I'm making now, singing drummer and Kiss singing drum. Yeah, and right, sure. So That's if enough. It's All Right had become a number one hit. It would have propelled that album to multi-platinum status. And then the dialogue around that album would have changed for the guys in Black Sabbath from, it was a hard album to make, we were tired, we were drugged out, lawyers, the album, we don't like the album. The dialogue would have changed to, it was a hard album to make, drugs, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, but it was all worth it. Right. Because, look it, it was our biggest selling album, just like Kiss. It was Kiss's biggest album, Destroyer. And then that would have changed the trajectory with Never Say Die would have sold better. Even if Never Say Die was exactly what it was, it would have sold better if Technical Ecstasy had a number one hit on it from it's all right then whatever the single was after it's all right hard road or or, uh or or not hard you know whatever would have came after that gypsy would have been a bigger hit so sometimes albums because it was a difficult album for the band to make they don't look on it favorably that gets out into the public sphere and it becomes sort of this thing that this okay well that's just what this album is and i think and i know you agree with me that that's a very unfair light to put uh technical ecstasy in. i think a lot of the stigma around technical ecstasy is from the band and from what it because it didn't sell well because it was so hard to make and now it's just this is the way people talk about this album when you're looking back on the Sabbath catalog which is really a shame because like you said there's a lot of really great stuff. Yeah.
1: Well, he, you know, here's the thing. So I appreciate what, what, what you said about Destroyer and, and certainly if Destroyer had tanked and Kiss had one more album after that and then had a major but, lineup change, if, if the history was the same as Black Sabbath and they said, yeah, well, you know, we, wow. Destroyer, what what a debacle that was! And we had Bob Ezrin, and then went through all this um, difficulty getting this album completed. And then, yeah, it didn't do well. Wow, that 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 was really unfortunate. Then it would probably be like a Never Say Die or a Technical Ecstasy. Yeah, Chris, you can only trust the first three Kiss albums. <laughs> but uh. It, it didn't. I mean, it was. It went on to be a, a big success. And oddly enough, it was, like you said, it was because of Beth. Beth was the radio
0: radio hit, and, and it just, uh, you know, catapulted the album. And that could have been It's All Right. It's All Right. It's not that. It
1: could have been. It could have been, off. but um, no, it wasn't. And I think, you know, a song like Beth is more conducive to Kiss. You know, I mean, Kiss was... They had a, a heavy rock theatrical, you could almost say evil image. But their music wasn't. With Black Sabbath, they had none of the theatrics, none of, none of the uh, you know, the stage show or, or the reputation. Well, they had a reputation for being a heavy, heavy metal band. So for them to come out with It's All Right was so far off the mark. I don't think it was i don't think it was accepted because of what they had done prior to that i i think it was it was just such a odd song but i mean on the other hand if you follow the progression from album to album by the time by the time you got to sabbath bloody sabbath i mean you could almost hear it's all right on sabbath bloody sabbath now Sabotage, the album in between Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and Technical Ecstasy, is just such an odd man out because they, that album was, was, the, that was the culmination of all the, the anger and strife and, and everything that was going wrong at the time culminated into this creative album, this, this creative output that was and became Sabotage. And then things kind of chilled out, you know. Band got through that. Um, They decided they were going to go to Florida and record at Criteria Studios. You know, we had the Bee Gees were there. Not at the same time, but at the same time Sabbath was there, the Eagles were recording Hotel California. Um, Who else? Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac was recording at the same time. And I think, like you mentioned, there was some pressure at this point because sales is starting to drop because of the management Issue the legal hassles, you know, and the fact that because they were mismanaged, sabotage kind of flew under everyone's radar. Remember we talked about that in the last session, it was kind of a hard record to find in a record store. I, I don't think it was promoted very well. So the, st- the sales started to, to decline. And I think like any other band at this particular time, they were seeing things around them that was, that was happening and felt maybe a little bit of pressure to try to modernize what they were doing And, well, punk was happening, and there was no way they were going to compete with that. But we had bands like Farner and Boston and and hard rock bands that were hitting the radio playlists hard with melodic, uh, more streamlined, more focused songs, you know, more lighthearted. So I, I think it was a conscious decision on their part to sort of try to do that with technical ecstasy. And... And they kind of did. I mean, Backstreet Kids—that's more of like an uplifting some rock and roll. Doctor, you know, um, it's all right. So there was a difference at this point in where Black Sabbath was, as opposed to where they were. And I think a lot of it was influenced by what was going on around them. But when, when you say that that they had a lot of difficulty making the album, um, from what I've read the album was fairly easy for everybody except for tony iomi because he had the majority of the workload like he was actually the one producing the album so he'd be in the studio uh producing this album and everybody would be you know sunning themselves or vacationing basically but they all kind of had their had their own jobs but tony iomi was definitely saddled with the majority of the workload he was kind of the workhorse and and you know, uh, it's kind of funny because
0: you,
1: when we did Sabotage um, last month, we didn't talk about Jez Woodruff coming into the fold. So Jez Woodruff came into the band during Sabotage, but now he was a fixture. And reading the Martin Popoff book, I forget what the name of it is. He's, he's written so many books and a lot of them on Sabbath, but. there's some interviews with with Jez Woodruff and his his recollection of what was going on in the studio is very different from everyone else's account Uh, definitely differs from geezers uh, Tony and Bill's but his recollection was there was a lot of a lot of strife that was going on that it was mostly centered around Ozzy Ozzy was just, just not into it he started to kind of get tired of the way things were going he wanted to get back to a more basic approach to recording and and making albums, and then from Sabbath Lady Sabbath onward, it just one after one album after another just kept getting further and further away from that with you know strings and keyboards and, and things like that, which of course is all about Jez Woodruff. Jez Woodruff was bringing into this context a more mature musician's vantage point, and that's why some of these songs are really more focused and incorporate different elements that I don't think the band would have been able to incorporate on their own without somebody who had this knowledge and talent and and Jez Woodruff was there. Now, it's interesting to note that Jez Woodruff is sort of like the precursor to Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslick in that he claims ownership of almost all these songs. He's like, yeah, I wrote that. Oh, I wrote that one too. Whether he did or he didn't, I don't know. No one knows unless they were there, but these certainly claims uh, ownership of, of most of the lyrics, if not all the lyrics, but Jez Woodruff said that uh, he was primarily responsible for uh, oh, what's on, all moving parts. And, um, and that may or may not be, but when I say that this is sort of the pre- precursor to Lee Kerslick and Bob Daisley, he's sort of a little bit salty, you know, I, I should have gotten credit, I should be getting royalties. But, you know, i that's my fault, I didn't sign any contracts but, you know, just know that I brought a lot of material, I brought a lot of ingenuity into this album and this album wouldn't have been what it was if it weren't for me. Well, I guess the irony is that this album isn't very highly regarded. So. <laughs> you know, definitely not what, what's he really lost out bad on? Bad but,
0: sales-wise.
1: Yeah, but, but he does claim ownership of a lot of it, and uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Um, you could certainly see that the, there was a progression there on this album that, uh, for better, for worse, is, is, is a marked difference in, in what they had done prior to that. Um, but, you know, it's definitely true that Ozzy has slagged the album, and, and that's when I first became aware, when we were talking about how, you know, our impressions of these albums were completely, and I'm, I'm fortunate in that I didn't have any influence from the internet. Uh, At the time or anybody else that that was giving me advice on which ones were good and which ones weren't so I mean I was discovering and making up my own mind as I went along. And that's one of the reasons why I like this album. But it wasn't until a little later that you know, uh, I started reading interviews with Ozzy and Ozzy was saying, oh, the last two albums were just awful for me and then, you know, they were just just the worst. And that's when the band started to break up and things were just um, horrible. And of course he's talking about technical ecstasy and never say die. So that was one of the things that through, through his admission made the album, these two albums, the last two albums that he was involved with the one, the dark horses, you know, and then that of course sends a message to everybody like, Oh, these albums aren't any good. Bozzi doesn't like them. They can't be any good. So that, that kind of helped with the reputation that that went along with these, these last two albums. But, um,
0: which is and and what, but
1: I, I i totally agree with what you said had it been a hit had there been a hit single had it catapulted them into a neck to the next level the way that it did with kiss if there was a single on this on this album the, the well Ozzy would probably still be with black sabbath I, I don't know maybe for another four albums or something but the way they look at it would be completely different but it wasn't it wasn't a success um it, it did reach platinum in the uk but it wasn't it, it took a while for it to get there and it wasn't it wasn't it didn't sell horribly but it it, it wasn't as good as albums prior to
0: that. So, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting that Ozzy, when I would read that, when I started reading that later on, that Ozzy would really slag on the, the last two albums. Because in my mind, <clears throat> and I mentioned this, that with Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath was when I was starting to be able to connect Black Sabbath to Blizzard of Oz and Diary of Mad and Ozzy solo. I couldn't really connect Master of Reality or the first Sabbath album. Those felt so different to me than where Ozzy was with his solo band. And really, with like Technical Ecstasy, because now we're getting close to, you know, we're only a couple of years removed now from Ozzy's first solo album. So his voice to me on Technical Ecstasy sounds very much like it does on Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman, his tone and the amount of range. Mm -hmm. that he was using and everything. And then you throw in there the the keyboards on Technical Ecstasy. You were talking about them. That was something keyboards would figure fairly prominently, sort of, in Ozzy's solo stuff. Uh, The little bit of, uh, like, She's Gone, the beginning sort of classical guitar thing, acoustic guitar thing felt very... Diary of a Madman like and uh, and even the production of Technical Ecstasy like I I love the production on on this album it's very warm it's whereas I I love Sabotage also but for a different reason Sabotage is a little bit more brighter upper mid-range for me whereas Technical Ecstasy is really nice and warm maybe that's all the keyboards sort of fleshing out the sound there's a lot of There's a lot of times where the keyboards are very dominant in the sound, but then there's also times when you're listening, they're just sort of in a subtle way, filling out, uh, adding some heft and depth to the uh, sound. Uh, But it's just a really warm sounding record. There's, I've, I've said this before, I like albums that are headphone mixes, meaning you can put it on and there's a lot of layered guitars. There's different guitar stuff going on. Geezer's bass sounds pretty good on this. Uh, There's a lot of the cool keyboard stuff that we've been talking about. I think Ozzy's voice sounds good. And and you know what, as as a young lad listening to uh, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman, you know, Blizzard of Oz has goodbye to romance. It's got things on it that were very sort of melodic and uh, lighter than the you know than, than the heavier stuff that he had done with with Sabbath or even on on Blizzard so mm-hmm. really like it's all right for me didn't feel that crazy because no. i had heard and in some ways it's all right it has a very similar chord progression to a uh, goodbye to romance is sort of like descending mm-hmm. walking down baseline thing on the, uh, I mean, it's a different feel to the songs and everything, but uh, so yeah, for me, it was, it was all starting to make sense. I, I could, I could feel how like this was, this was Ozzy, this, the Ozzy Osbourne solo artist that I knew I was, I was really connecting this together. And there's just a lot of you know the the uh, uh, she's gone and you won't change me. You know that keyboard line and you won't change me. It really reminded me of same kind of synth sound that you hear on Mr. Crowley. Uh, great guitar playing from from Miami on this oh, yeah. album. Uh, the heavy riffing. Uh, like you were talking about Backstreet Kids that just that sort of driving riff and it's just it's, it's really tight the drums sound good on it uh, so yeah it's just it's it's an album that uh, it's and it's an album that I, I return to a lot because I feel like there's little nuggets and little gems to be found on this on this record and and not that sometimes I'm in the mood for Paranoid and sometimes I'm in the mood to hear Iron Man and War Pigs, but maybe because I haven't heard these songs as much. And uh, I feel myself coming back to this album. And I always find it interesting. I always find the albums in a band's career where the, where the band was sort of struggling, where the band was under some pressure. I always find those albums interesting because it sort of gives you a, a, an insight into the band if you will you know it's it's it's, it's kind of like you know you <clears throat> you don't really know your friends until until d- during the good times everything is good well you don't know who your friends are until things go south and things are getting bad it's, it's sort of like that with a band, you know, you don't really know the band until you've seen them when when things aren't going so well. And I just I always find it interesting, those albums that are sort of the dark horse <clears throat> or the ones that are, that are written off or that are, that are recorded and written under a lot of pressure or strife or tension. I find in a lot of ways, those can be really interesting albums. You know, Maybe Deep Purple might be a comparison. You know, there was always that tension between Blackmore and Gillen and in some ways that created some really good stuff. So in my yeah. mind, the state of mind that Sabbath was in at this time, you know, really came out, came through on the record and, it, and maybe they put their emotions and everything into this record. And I, for me, yeah. it works. To me, it sounds like it's a pretty confident album. I mean, even the songs that are maybe taking a risk,
1: they sound like they're pretty confident
0: songs. I mean, they- Yeah, which is the strange thing, like it's it's when you read the history of this, this album, they, and I mentioned this in the introduction because it's talked about so often, like they were confused about <clears throat> where their place in the rock and roll pantheon was. Punks, punk rocks here, new waves coming and Sabbath is confused and doesn't know what to do. But like you just said, when I heard this record, I mean, it, it, it comes across very confidently, song, Dirty Women, Gypsy, you know, yeah. the whole record sounds very confident. It doesn't sound to me like they're sort of fishing or, no. you know, or trying to, like throw things against the wall and see. what yeah. sticks. You can maybe accuse Never Say Die, of a little bit of that, and we'll get to that on the next episode. Yeah. But and I think even though nice to see different, trying different things, but to me it to me it works. It doesn't sound to me like a band that had lost confidence in who they were or anything.
1: No, and I think even though they were trying to to maybe make something that was a little bit more modern, a little bit more contemporary, uh, based on things that were were charting, um, it, it it doesn't it doesn't sound it's not it doesn't sound like it's it sounds confident it, it sounds like um, you, you, you could see a band that was reaching too far out of their element and it, it you can hear it and it, it just sounds off it doesn't sound right even though on this album they were probably reaching a little out of their comfort zone I think they were confident enough and excited enough about the songs pull it off and 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 they do when you mentioned about um sort of how blizzard and diary you you could hear from from this album and and maybe i'm not sure if you mentioned the sabotage or not but i think maybe the last time we talked about sabotage you, you had mentioned it not and, and i agreed and, and i do that you can hear how ozzy's solo album kind of maybe this was like the precursor to that but what's, what's ironic about that is that Ozzy was the one who didn't really want there to be keyboards. He, he didn't want jazz in the band as a full-time member. And when, in that book that I talked about, I'm gonna plug Martin Popov, but um, there's interviews with Tony, um, Bill, Geezer, <clears throat> and Jazz. And Tony, Bill, and Geezer are all pretty much in this, on the same page. They said, you know, the origin of technical ecstasy is essentially we started off at Ridge Farm Studios, we wrote, rehearsed the whole thing, you know, and uh, I think he said like six weeks, and then they went off to Miami and they recorded it. And the recording was was fairly easy. There wasn't a lot of arguing in the studio. Uh, Tony wasn't really happy that, you know, he had this tremendous workload and a deadline on top of that. So he felt like he was, you know, kind of overwhelmed. But uh, they all say that it was a reasonably happy time the sunny weather. The environment had a lot to do with that. But on the other side of the coin, when he, Jez Woodruff is talking about it, he's acting like, oh, Ozzy was just horrible it made it really obvious that he didn't want to be there. He wanted nothing to do with the album. He would come in and, and lay his vocals down after everything had pretty much been done. And sometimes we had to find him and bring him to the studio because he was so reluctant to be there. And then Bill Ward was talking about how uh, with It's All Right, he had the song from a few years ago and the guys heard it and they encouraged him to put it on the album. He wasn't really sure. And he also was kind of mindful of not wanting to step on Ozzy's toes. Ozzy is a singer in Black Sabbath and he didn't want to, you know, offend Ozzy. Ozzy was his friend, bandmate. He didn't want to affect the relationship on a personal level or affect the relationship politically within the band. But Ozzy was okay with it and so the album, the song made it to the album. According to Jazz, Ozzy wasn't there when Bill Ward was in the studio, he was singing it. Ozzy came into the studio heard it and said what's this rubbish and then said something to bill 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 threw a fit started trashing his drum set and i don't know i mean it's just strange that jez's recollection of what happened is so diametrically opposed to the band's recollection of what happened so who do you believe i don't know but i i do know that and i i read this in a couple other from a couple I'm taking this from a couple other sources one is actually a biography a blurb about the band Necromandis. and it was around this time that Ozzy was plotting his solo career and he was going to use the dudes from the band the English band Necromandis, who had opened for Sabbath I think Tony was managing them and they were associated with Black Sabbath and and Ozzy invited the guys over to his house to, and I think more of, it was more out of curiosity for Ozzy to see if he could apply his voice to a diff- in a different context. He's, he'd only known Sabbath. And I think it was, it was something he wanted to do because he wasn't happy or hadn't been happy with the way that Black Sabbath was, was recording albums. It was too much of a production and then you got the keyboards and the strings and everything else and he didn't didn't like that he wanted it to be a rock band and he wanted to get back to that so he tried this thing out with the guys in necromandis but because he wasn't really even motivated to do that because he was basically pretty burnt out in general that didn't achieve liftoff but not before he made that blizzard of oz shirt there's imaginary band which was and the guys in Necromandus, he was that. That was the plan. They were going to be the Blizzard of Oz, the first incarnation of Blizzard of Oz. But as it turned out, it never achieved liftoff, and Ozzy went back and uh, resumed his role in Black Sabbath. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of theories about this album and what happened behind the scenes. But uh, according to the the members, it, really, it the thing that that seemed to really take crush crushed their spirit was the press. The press just hated the album. They were always kind of cruel to Black Sabbath in general. And now I think when when they heard this album and it got really bad reviews, wasn't doing well, the press really crushed their spirits. And particularly Ozzy, who was sort of somewhat insecure to begin with, but when he started reading the reviews and I think he started to doubt himself. And I think the band were starting to listen to the critics and wondering, yeah, where is our place now in this musical climate? Are we dinosaurs? They were being described as dinosaurs by by certain critics. Most of them were probably kids, you know, but Sabbath were now the dinosaurs. They, they had kind of achieved their longevity and, you know, things were happening around them that were more exciting and topical and interesting you know punk and new wave and, and yeah. bands like like foreigner in Boston with the hit machines you know and then you had the the, the drug rock thing you know in in the way that it was associated with with, with bands like Black Sabbath wasn't really re- that relevant to to the mainstream culture anymore and I think that started to eat at them a little bit and I think that's one of the reasons why the album had sort of a self-esteem issue
0: yeah, and like you mentioned, the with with punk rock showing up, and even the birth of the new wave of British heavy metal. Now there's a whole crop of young kids that are starting sort of a new, a new influenced by these bands, but their own take on heavy rock. And a lot of the bands that were in Black Sabbath's uh, class if you will you know we're talking zeppelin i mean what zeppelin what was zeppelin putting out at this time presence, presence. you know so yeah. zeppelin was sort of in a very similar situation uh what, what did deep purple put out in 77 blackmore was way out of the band by that point right they were, I, I don't still, think they were doing anything at that point the uh, last so, purple so a lot of these old guards or the, the if the, as the punk rockers would have referred to them as these dinosaurs, the dinosaur acts like Purple Zeppelin, Sabbath, Uriah Heap. These these bands were all struggling a little bit to to find their place in the changing in the changing musical landscape, and a lot of them were you know you could. Maybe Presence is is the technical ecstasy of the Led Zeppelin catalog. You know, there might be Zeppelin fans that feel yeah. the same way about Presence where they had their big day. It was sort of feeling like there was there was a new movement bubbling in, in the world of metal, British metal, new wave British heavy metal. Punk is on the scene and everything. So uh, these bands in general, it was almost like no matter what they would have put out probably would have been met with a little bit of a uh, brush off because yeah. were, you know again they were approaching that mm-hmm. well you guys are yesterday's news you had your moment in the spotlight make way for the for the younger generation yeah. so that probably did uh, you know affected the way this album was reviewed, reviewed and thought about and, and then uh, where it's been placed in, uh, in history. But, uh, you know, again, like you said, it's even though with all this stuff going on, I, I, I think that they, like you said, they put out a really confident album and a really well sounding really well produced, well done record that, uh, you know, it still seems like it's working at this point. And one could argue when we get to technical ecstasy that there's there's clearly something uh, amiss on on technical ecstasy. Uh, I mean, I'll never say die. die.
1: Yeah, I, I think in retrospect, the band made the right decision by <clears throat> changing the, uh, the sound a little bit and uh, not so drastically where their personality wasn't there, but you got to give them credit, I mean, for them to go back and, and do another Master of Reality or Volume 4, man, the critics would have slammed them for that, too. They would have said, oh, this band is just uh, stuck in a rut. You know, they are just keep making the same album over and over again. This is 1976. Things are changing. Get with the times. They had two choices. Either do, well, I mean, the choice, there was no choice for them because they continued to progress. Every album was a progression from the one before. But theoretically, there would be two choices. One is to either advance or to do what what's sold to do what people think they are supposed to do and that would have been the heavy sludgy master of reality volume four you know that kind of a sound and uh maybe that would have made ozzy happy but i don't think that uh it would have it would have it would have panned out any better for them i think the critics would have attacked them on that too so i think that more honorable honorable for them to do what they did just try to be a little bit more contemporary and still yeah. within you know within their own standards
0: yeah i agree all right well let's take a look at the songs on the record starts off with backstreet kids we've talked about that a little bit uh that that's a great driving riff i love there's like it's like the way the the, the bass line is in that song it has like rolling sort of heavy repetitive grinding kind of riff iomi's guitar just sounds sounds great on the whole record but on this one especially it's like everybody's locked in really tight there's a little bit of the, the keyboard stuff in this i love mm-hmm. ozzy's uh ozzy's voice in it uh, the wow. whole sort of middle section when it sort of lifts up there and there's like those big keyboard yeah. and living life comes easy. you know that whole like in sabbath we're the masters of that i think we we mentioned this on and we probably mentioned it on a few episodes that yeah. they're very good at having these dark heavy riffs and then all of a sudden it changes into this melodic sort of yeah uh, uplifting thing and again, it's it made me think about where Ozzy was with his solo uh, career. Ozzy had a lot of that, a lot of that melodic, you know, everyone goes through changes, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. that kind of uplifting melodic thing and you, and you hear that here in the middle of this song.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's a great album opener. I mean, it's like a statement of intent, it gets things, gets the blood pumping the solid rocker. I love the riff. Love the lyrics, down to earth, you know. I mean at this at this stage of the game it, they could have taken on some kind of pre- pretentious image. They didn't, you know. It's like here we are. We're still the same guys we always were. It's 1976. It's, we're you know, we're a little older, but we're here here to rock, you know. And uh it's a great album opener. It's a great great way to start things off. And when I when I got the album, when I when the needle first hit that groove and I, I heard that first song i mean i i definitely got chills i was like yeah
0: yeah, yeah. this is what i want to hear that was my impression too it was like yeah because it just it starts like just bam it, yep. which is really cool yep. and then you won't change me this is a real moody like these these keyboards in this and uh the way that sort of ominous creepy very 70s keyboard line in the in this kind of weaves its way in and out this song and the way and then it sort of explodes with the heavier uh, chords and the whole sentiment of the song you know mm. nobody will change me you know and d- just the whole thing Ozzy's delivery on this is just really yeah. really fantastic it's really I just love the dark the dark mood of this one
1: I love it because it kind of harkens back to the earlier Sabbath with, with the doomy intro. It, it's really doomy. There's no denying that. Uh, but where it goes from there, it, it kind of travels along. But it, it it seems really sincere. The message is really easy to connect to. The message of the song, no matter how old you are, if you're 12 or if you're 52, you know it, the message is there. It stays the same. It's really easy to wrap your head around and internalize and i think that's where the, the that particular song works for me um, you know i'm still listening to this album 40 years later and i'm still able to connect to it that that's a beautiful thing you know i mean yeah. because the message is so simple but it's effective and and the sentiment is good but the music um yeah, like i said it definitely has carries over some of that 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 doominess as as, as sort of like an intro and then it, it almost works as a great template for the rest of the album in a way, or, or like a presentation of the purpose of the album, where it shows where the band, and you know, it has the element of where the band was, and then brings it into a more modern context and follows along, but the melodies are great. It, it's a well-written song. Little strange for, for it to drop so drastically from the momentum that builds up from Backstreet Kids to this, but it works I mean
0: you know I, I don't have a problem with it yeah and I love the part in this song that nobody's gonna change my yeah. world that's something too unreal nobody change the way I feel and then I only solo yeah I mean this is him just going crazy it reminds yeah. me a little bit of like the over and over on uh, mob rules or lonely is the word you know tony was very good at that like just sort of frantic crazy yeah. like yeah solo thing.
1: you know as we go from from track to track i mean there's there's a lot of one of the things that i love about this album too it's a great album for tony because these are some of his best solos for my money and i'm not a guitar player so when I like when I listen to a guitar solo, when I remember, when I take notice of a guitar solo, it's that it's it serves the song, that it has a melody, and it's well phrased. And prior to this, there was a lot of lot of Iommi solos that were kind of messy or double or triple tracked, you know. But here it gets more decisive and real melodic. Almost in, in some ways, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Clapton or Gilmore, um, and, and really serves the song solo in this is where this is the first place that this happens and it's it's noticeable and it really, it it helps the song too.
0: Yeah. All right. And then Bill Ward steps up to the mic for It's All Right. We were talking about this one, how this, you know, could have, could have, if this had been a hit for them. uh, Now it's a melodic, uh, it's it's a catchy, melodic, fun one. I love the, uh, the sort of the middle section where the chords sort of move around, and there's some layered guitars, and then there's sort of a big build up and like a big drum fill, and it comes mm-hmm. into the to the last verse, and then there's these nice like acoustic guitars then layered in. Yeah, so the last verse has like more stuff going on. It it just it, it builds really nicely, and it's a it's a fun fun song. It's a fun song.
1: It's a nice song. Um, of the entire song what I really like the most is that middle part and actually Iomi brought that in but I I really like the way that that I I like the sound of that part And I like the way that it fits in with the song it's a perfect segue to the ending but um, one of the things I think I like about the song the most is that to me it it, it, there's a lot of Bill's personality in the song yeah it sounds kind of like a personal thing and you kind of get a little insight into what's going on with with, in, inside Bill's head, and uh, from what I've read, and, and from you know doing our podcast and talking about each individual album and, and some of the stories about Bill Ward and stuff, it seems like he's kind of a lovable guy. Uh, he's only ever been maybe a danger. If he's ever been a danger to anybody, it's only been himself. But he's he's, he's reasonably intelligent, uh, but he's he's kind of a friendly, lovable guy. Um, and I, I kind of get that impression from this song. So it's really cool to have a little insight into uh, probably one of the least popular members of the band. I guess. You now The drummer, usually, is kind of <laughs> popular. But, uh, you know, Tony Iommi was was out in front. In fact, I think that live, this is where he puts himself right in center stage. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with, I think, that he... And, you know, I mean, maybe rightfully so. Maybe he felt like he was pulling a lot of the... This is where it really becomes Iommi's band. I I think this is the point where it becomes his band. And I think a lot of it is because of all the amount of work that he's doing in the studio. And, uh, but anyway, getting back to It's All Right. Yeah, it's a great song. Different for Sabbath, but I like the melody. I like that Bill Ward singing it. And, you know, I think I like Bill Ward more because of it. Dude, some of his personality, I think, comes through in the yeah. song. Pretty
0: cool. Yeah, absolutely. All right, the gypsy starts off with that kind of cool drum part. Uh, cool riffing again on this. I, I like the uh, the ending. So you want to be a gypsy? The way the song sort of goes out. Come on now. Yeah, yeah. The way it sort of builds uh, builds at the end there, and this this is another one it has a lot of nice changes in it. It's got a lot of different different sections. Uh, I love the sort of the subject matter of it. She she took my soul, you know, sort of this gypsy gypsy woman, uh, you know, casting a spell, yeah. and everything type of thing. So it's 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 a cool song. I'd mentioned before that.
1: This album, when I was a kid, reminded me of a lot of like uh, old horror movies. This one always reminded me of the Wolfman with the gypsy, because mm-hmm. when, I, when, I, when I had the, the image of the gypsy in my head, she looked like that actress, or that, that character in that movie. Anyway, five parts. There's no real chorus. It's not structured the same as any other Black Sabbath, but it, it is so epic and so cinematic. The way it starts second progression, third progression, fourth progression, and the fifth progression, which is the climax. It just builds so, so well. It, it's just such a well-written song, and it's, it's a very unusual song for them to do. Each part is great. Um, it, it's This is where, this is the point, listening to this album for the first time, this is where my jaw dropped, and this is when I was like, wow, this is this is awesome. This is a great, yeah. great song. We are, and I, I couldn't wait to hear Side Two, and of course Side Two didn't disappoint. But yeah, Gypsy, very epic. Uh,
0: yeah, it's probably the highlight of the album for me. Yeah, this is a real, you know, when I talked about hidden gems on this record, this, this for sure is is one of those. This is like, you know, a great, great Sabbath song. When you when you think of the classics. From, from the other albums, uh, this is the one, like you said, this is one of my favorites on this one. And, uh, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of a hidden gem in, the, in yeah. the catalog. It's not really something they ever played live. I don't think after this tour, I don't think they ever revisited this song. So it's it's really, and it's, it's like you said, that's the interesting thing about Black South. They always did this. They, they were never a verse chorus, verse chorus band. But here, uh, you know, this that really works to their strength on this from where this song begins with the uh, I don't know how you would describe that that drum intro that's sort of funky ish. Yeah, so like drum intro or something, you know, and the song just has, it's it's, it's almost a little uplifting in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to get darker and darker.
1: Yeah, that part. Right da, 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 da,
0: yeah, there, where everything sort of drops down. She took my body and she, my, you know, yeah. sort of like telling a story and it starts off sort of positive And then all of a sudden things, it gets real negative. Yeah. And, that is real, sort of dramatic in its its structure and the way it builds. It's just a really, really well done song.
1: This is one that's really dependent on the keyboards, and you can really hear how the integration of the keyboards really shaped this album uh, successfully. If you're going to go by Gypsy, um, it, it's present in "You Won't Change Me," and uh, it's pretty valuable in that song. But here is where it really, really shows its value. The, the inclusion of the keyboards on this album um you know the people that say again i got to come back to you can only trust the first six black sabbath albums if you can say if you can say that after hearing this album and hearing gypsy then then i don't know but I, I can't i can't imagine there being any black sabbath fan that that doesn't like gypsy there's just nothing wrong with it there's nothing to not
0: like about it it's just a great song yeah, I don't know blows my mind. All right, and then things take sort of a strange turn here with all moving parts stand still kind of has a maybe the first time Sabbath delves into this it's almost like a funky and geezers line is sort of funky and there's a like a clavinet harpsichord. Thing yeah. Going on with the keyboards. Uh, the lyrics are totally bizarre. I know really the, bizarre. The, the band said it was like about a, a transvestite or something running for president or some elected office or something bizarre, totally bizarre like that. And I I still can't make sense of any of it, but it's got some memorable the memorable line for me in this is. I like choking toys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, well, I, I, just such a bizarre song. This is just really that's a really weird.
1: Yeah, that's a strange line, but I think it has to do with the main character being of a sadistic nature. Um, I, I did hear that that it was about a transvestite running for president, but I've also heard more recently, reading uh, reading up on this in, in Geezer's interpretation, or actually it was Bill Ward's interpretation of Geezer's lyrics saying that, at the time, they, they felt um, that America was, so, was too misogynistic to ever be able to accept a woman as president. So if a woman were to be president, she would have to be disguised as a man. And then that's where the transvestite concept kind of was like thrown into it. But it's actually a woman running for president, but the only way that she can win is if she goes under the, the disguise of a man. Why they chose that subject matter, I don't know. But as it moves along, you get the character, the impression of the character is not of a very you don't feel sorry for this particular character, kind of a nasty, but I guess it's sort of reinforced the whole political politicians, the distaste for politicians. So even even though this is a woman who wants to go against the, the grain, misogynistic nature of, of America and and goes to the trouble of disguising herself as a man she's still a bad person because she's a politician which is what that, that's my takeaway from this song
0: mm-hmm. it's it's, oh, an song. The, uh, it's got the fast part towards the end and then when it drops back down into that main riff you know ball don't bat, and down and it goes from that fast yeah. and drops back down into that main riff it's just a really cool All right, then Rock and Roll Doctor. You know, I I have a confession to make. This is not one of my favorite Black Sabbath songs. It's not that I dislike the song, but I'm not a fan of this kind of bluesy, almost boogie rock-like feel a little bit of the riff it kind of reminds me of like I never cared for if you don't like rock and roll off of you know the first Rainbow album like just just that status quo kind of thing I'm not a fan of that and I remember hearing this this song and and this was maybe the first time that I heard something from Sabbath that I was like yeah this is cool But it just didn't, uh, you know. It's if 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 I was ranking the songs from the from the Ozzy era, the original Ozzy era of Sabbath, this 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 one would be unfortunately sort of towards the bottom of my list. But it's not without some cool things. I I sort of like the 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 vibe of it, you know. Got to got to call your rock and roll doctor, you know, making a drug reference and everything, and uh, you know, there is some cool stuff in it, cool IOMI playing and everything, and it is a little different for the band, and they had sort of foreshadowed this on the tour. Yeah. Whereas before this, they were sort of messing around with this, these these riffs and everything, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, it kind of came out uh, about from a jam in one of uh, IOMI's solo segments live. What I like about the song, to me, the song, is in the same vein as backstreet kids uh it's not weighted down by any uh well, definitely not weighted down by any uh cerebral concept or anything or any kind of like social agenda it's a fun song um i think in the context of the album it's placed well yeah you know, get through the, the weirdness that is uh, all moving parts stand still and you're kind of like, well, you're wondering what just happened there. Then you get into this levity that is rock and roll, doctor. At this point, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't care what they did. I liked it. <laughs> if Ozzy was singing it, I liked it. Yeah. Um, that was the impression it had for me. And you know what? I I i maintained this stance now, uh, and I think you and I have talked about this before. Like I know we we have that when an album came out, when a, when a band prior, well, I'm gonna say prior to like 1989 or something, but in the 80s especially, when a band came out with an album, you liked it. If you liked the band, most times you liked the album or it challenged you. I remember when Power Slave came out, I, there was no real talk about what the contents of the album was gonna be. And it wasn't, it wasn't a bit of a departure from the previous albums, but, so, I mean, when I first heard it, I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's really strange and, and there was the, the epics and, and everything and, uh, but there was that, that, that mentality of the, the band is, is the artist, the band is the creative force. They're confident in their expression. You either like it or you don't. And most times, if you like the band, if you've liked you like their personality, you like their music, you like what they've done before, you'll find a way to like what they're doing now. It may, If you don't take to it immediately, it may have to grow on you a little bit, but but you will because you like the band and you respect the band and you respect their decisions musically. That was my mentality. And it still is to some extent uh, up until the internet. But when you started hearing everything that was going on behind the scenes and everything that was every little last detail about what was in their in their minds at the time they were writing the album way way too much information there wasn't that much information and it was it was okay it was okay that we didn't need to know every last little detail um but rock and roll doctor ozzy could like i said before ozzy could be singing a phone book and uh <laughs> i, I would have liked it you know
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I liked I mean, it was, like the song same, was the same way too it wasn't that it was there, there is nothing when I when I say my least favorite Black Sabbath song, it's it, it's still way better than most other bands. Stuff like you said at that time, I was just so into hearing Ozzy.
1: Sing.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of other like Black Sabbath fans
1: other than yourself that, that I respect and, and they don't like it either. And I'm like, OK, you know, I, I get it. I, I do, but the, you know, I and mean, I understand why somebody wouldn't like it. It is definitely a kind of a, a strange song, but there's a lot of strange songs in this album. But I think that the sequence and the in the context and the, the way that they all sort of fit together so well, it just makes them all. They're all sort of dependent on one another. And like I said, when when you start off side two and you get into the weirdness that is all moving parts stand still, and you're like, what What was that all about? And then it kicks in with something that's very straightforward, melodic, kind of like a party, fun, boogie, rock and roll doctor. I'm cool with that. I'm, I'm at that point. I need a little levity here to take the edge off of all
0: moving parts, staying still, because it is definitely a bizarre song. Yeah. And then She's Gone. This is maybe one of the best like Aussie ballads from from this early from the, you know, the first eight albums. In my opinion, this is this is another sort of hidden gem on this record. Uh, Ozzy's delivery on this is just great. The strings uh, really add a lot to this. The acoustic guitar, uh, just just the whole thing. It's just a really sort of mournful, uh, sad but beautiful, uh, beautiful song. This is a mature version of Changes. Yeah, this
1: is where changes goes after it's grown up. Um, you know, the changes I, I, I always had a hard time with that song, it always seems like it's a real stopgap on volume four. It's like it just sounds so so juvenile in, in some ways. I mean, I've grown to like it, or I, I've grown to accept it. It's not one of my like you, rock and roll Doctor is a song that that doesn't really hit for you, changes is a song that doesn't hit for me, however same sentiment is in she's gone and it works really well in fact this is another another highlight on the album for me ozzy sounds better than he ever has before um i understand that the song was about bill ward's ex-wife or the, the breakup of one of his marriages possibly the first but you wouldn't know that because Ozzy takes ownership of it and delivers it so emotionally convincingly, and his voice just sounds fantastic. Um, high watermark for Ozzy's voice um, as far as balladry within the Sabbath context. Yeah, this is a, this is the top right here. I mean, this is a, um, I guess, another way to, to articulate this in a Sabbath context is that you don't have to be heavy to be doomy. You could be it could be a ballad and still be crushingly sad and emotional. And and she's gone is that. So even though the guitars aren't amped up, it's it's just as effective and just as doomy as anything off of any previous album. You know, the, the whole concept and this is another thing that's really I think it's easy for people to connect with whether you're whether you're a teenager or you're Twenty or thirty-year-old, or even older than that, at some point in your life, you've had some kind of a relationship situation, and it's when you're dealing with that. It's 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 sometimes it's good to find comfort in music. Boom! Here it is. You could go right to this song, and you've got a shoulder to cry on because mm-hmm. you know this is that. So, yeah, it's an easy song to connect with,
0: and I think it's really well done. And and this this really. Uh you know, one of the great qualities of Ozzy's voice is just that sort of mournful thing that he can do when he sort of goes up into the higher part of his range. But she never know, did, you know, mm. I could have him when she was gone. Whatever, they can't remember the lyrics right there, but uh, so it really suits Ozzy's voice here, that sort of whining quality to sad, mournful quality to Ozzy's mm-hmm. voice. And and to reference back to changes, you're right, changes is sort of like the the, 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 the juvenile version of, of this. If you remember on Changes, that's Geezer, the guys in the band playing those very minor string parts or playing it on a on a keyboard. Yeah. And it's very one finger Mm-hmm. one simplistic thing now here you can hear this orchestrated this is real somebody knew what they were doing well it was Jess woodruff right he knew what he was doing with, with these strings and with the sounds on this and the way this is layered and and all this stuff and then and that really makes takes this song it, it could have been a real simple good simple song, but with all this lush orchestration, it just takes it into to something else and makes it a really, to yeah be a really special, really special it's, song.
1: Yeah, and, and this is where Jez Woodruff, for any amount of difficulty he may have brought to the band, this is where his value really comes through. And um, for those that don't know, and most people probably do, uh, Jez Woodruff went on to play in Robert Plant's band. So he, he, he is, he does have pedigree. This is where he was before he joined Robert Plant's band, but it wasn't, it wasn't too long after this. Actually, eh, I think it, yeah, actually this was the last album he did with Sabbath. So it was not too long after Technical Ecstasy that he hooked up with Robert Plant, although Led Zeppelin had uh, an album in 1979. So Plant hadn't gone solo yet, but it would be a few years later that he would join Robert Plant's band and be a principal songwriter on those first three albums, I think, which which are really good. But anyway, uh, so with with Jez Woodruff and uh, some of the controversy, I guess, or turmoil, more accurately, that he caused the band, I think when uh, when it was all sorted out, a song like this, I think definitely uh, makes his presence worthwhile
0: sure all right and then the album closes with a, with a pretty epic number dirty women uh i love that intro riff i love ozzy's this is another delivery thing that ozzy does really well that sort of like venomous sound his sleepy city is when he does that kind yeah. of i think it's great the outro on this is, is classic and something that i only uh. play even in and the reunion era this was kind of the showcase for tony that descending uh that that chord progression yeah. that gives wow, Tony man. a chance to really stretch out and and yeah. and he really really does on this record on this song you know it's really a chance for him to stretch out maybe one of his one of his greatest uh you know solo moments here in my in my opinion is yeah. the ending of this song totally agree one of the best i IOE solos right there. But you know what really gets me
1: is that build up. That build up right before it gets into that that down and dirty riff. But that when the keyboards are wailing and everything is just building and building and building and building and the tension's building up and then it boom comes down to that heavy killer riff. And then it from there kind of you know I, and I love that riff so much. It's such a such a great heavy hard rock riff. And then afterwards the outro and the the you know the the melody, the the vocal melody that's just kind of in the background, just going back and forth. And then and then Naomi with opens up with this phenomenal solo, his best solo of his career, I think. Certainly my favorite, anyway. Great song. And again, I mean, th- these are the things that I think about when I'm when I see somebody say, oh, "Yeah, Technical Ecstasy is a horrible album." I'm like, how can you say that when you've got so many great songs i mean yeah. you know i, I it, it really like i said before i mean it blows my mind i mean i can understand now eh, you don't like uh it's all right you're not into rock and roll doctor I, I get that but man dirty woman dirty women gypsy she's gone uh you can't change me these are just great songs yeah. i mean i don't know
0: yeah, and it's it's a great sort of epic album closer, and this is something that Iommi would take with him when when Dio came into the band. Sort of these these last song on the record with Iomi taking these long solos out. Lonely is the word. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. You know, where Iommi would just sort of take take the album take the album out, and the, yeah. Yeah, and it's like we mentioned, it's a song that when they reunited with Ozzy, this was pretty much been in, was in the set list uh, from, from that point on. Not not really anything survived the set list after, after this tour, but Dirty Women did. So it's, it's, it's a great way to end the album. Again, it, there's a lot of, we mentioned this earlier, this sort of dramatic cinematic feel to a lot of these songs and this song has that too you know you could picture the video for this somebody walking in a dirty new york street at raining at night and everything the street lights and it just it just paints a really really great picture and just moves along really well not unlike gypsy in a lot of ways you know gypsy side one ends very very strong on this record side two ends uh, just as strong here mm-hmm. with, with Dirty One. The album is paced really, really well. You know, even yeah. I complained a little bit about Rock and Roll Doctor. I do agree with your point about the way this album flows. Uh, everything is just sort of placed really nicely and everything sort of helps contrast and move you in a slightly different direction from from uh, what came before Rock and Roll Doctor, following all move me, moving parts, She's Gone, mournful and sad, and then that Dirty Women yeah. dark, heavy riff kicks in. Uh, same thing with Gypsy, It's All Right, moving into Gypsy, and mm-hmm. it's just a really well-paced yeah. it's, album. It's a perfect sequence. I mean,
1: when you have, in each song is, there really aren't songs that are really otherwise uh, theoretically compatible with one another, you know, I mean each song kind of has its own personality, its own identity, so it would really be difficult if you were set to the task of trying to sequence this album, man, I mean, it, it, it would be pretty difficult, but whoever did it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess it was probably Tony that um, did, did an amazing job because the sequence really makes this album shine um, makes each song occupy its own space carries over from the one before sets the tone for the next for the next one and it's just it's a perfect sequence i mean I, I i guess you could probably play with the order maybe you could find a better sequence if you really put your mind to it but
0: man after all this time why why do it i mean it works so well the way it is yeah you know. really? and and we sit on pins and needles waiting for the technical ecstasy box set as as at, at this time of our recording this it has not landed and we're all sitting here with fingers crossed that there'll be some interesting little nuggets even if they're just outtakes or alternate versions or something uh, i would love i'd love to hear sort of some stripped down early early uh, demo working versions of some of these songs. I think that would be really fascinating because there's so much keyboards and layered stuff on this to hear some of these songs in a stripped down one guitar setting might be uh, just something might be really, really interesting. I'm going to say don't hold your breath, but uh, anything's possible. Uh,
1: I would certainly put it on (laughs) pre-order. If I hear any news about it, I'm not sure I'm going to pre-order it from Rhino based on my experiences with the last three things I pre-ordered from Rhino. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that. But I, I kind of think that's not going to happen. One of the things, though, that was really interesting, uh, I, another plug to Martin Popoff's book, Jez Woodruff mentions that the band had a mobile studio on one of the shows, and I forget which show it was, and they had planned to do a live album 1976 on this tour. The rest of the band doesn't remember it. Well, Tony didn't say anything, but Geezer doesn't have any recollection, neither did Bill Ward. But Jez Woodruff said that he distinctly remembers that there was a mobile studio uh, band that was had and they were gonna do a, a live album on one of the shows. The reason it didn't um, Achieved liftoff or didn't move beyond the recording phase is because they didn't like the performances or there's something about it that just didn't quite they just didn't like it and it, the idea was scrapped uh, pretty interesting um also jez woodruff takes full credit for the song dirty women wow it says he
0: wrote it uh, not contributed he said that. that's my song yeah i mean uh, riffs sound like classic I yeah. know, riffs so I, I find that a little bit hard to believe I find it hard to believe too <laughs> sounds you to a little bit like the controversy with greg gruber claiming yeah. he played bass and wrote die young hey we'll we'll save that mystery for our heaven and hell episode which is yeah off so alright you got any, got any final final words you want to have here on technical ecstasy before we wrap it up uh,
1: I think this is the last Black Sabbath album of the Ozzy era that I'm really enthusiastic about um, and, and, and like I said before this is an album that is it, it sometimes if it's not my favorite it's definitely like in, in the top three I mean I really connect to this album uh, a lot of it is because of the way that, that I, I heard it the first time when I bought it but I just love the songs and I, and I, I love everything about the album. And I, and I think it's, uh, it's unfortunate that people don't give it a chance. I, I, think if they really sat down and listened to it and maybe got some of the, some of the pre preconceived notions about the album out of their, put it out of their minds for, for the half hour, or 40 minutes that it, that it lasts, it might change their minds about it because it, it really is a great album. And, uh, yeah. So it's unfortunate that it's, uh, not part of the first six that you can only trust. Because I trust this album. I trust it. Yes. In <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna a shirt. You can only trust technical ecstasy.
0: <laughs> In technical ecstasy we trust. You can only trust technical ecstasy and never say die. What? Darren, Darren, if, if you go on South Street on any given Saturday night in Philadelphia, Darren has a table set up with, uh, you know, you 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 can only trust technical ecstasy. Fight me over it. Yeah, Five yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I'm with you. It's 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 an album that that I love. That that uh, you know, full of just just great kind of deep cuts from the band. I have very fond memories of waiting to get this and then eventually getting it. And so so there you go. All right, technical ecstasy. We've got never say die on the uh, in the lined up here for the next one. I think I'm gonna be a little bit of the guy that technical ecstasy is to you. Like maybe not quite to this extent, but I'm quite fond of Never Say Die. I'm I'm more fond of Never Say Die than the average sabbath fan so i think i'm gonna i'm gonna enjoy going to bat you can find Art- me on a, on a tampa street on any saturday night with a uh, table and the uh, never say die is, is is better than people think fight me over it
1: son. yeah part of the, part of the thing that kills us for me and we started this one of the first podcasts that we did and I, I talked about how never say die was the first black sabbath album that i got and that that wasn't such a good thing i think that i if I had gotten paranoid or Master of Reality first, and then worked my way, even maybe if it was just a couple albums after that, I may have been able to wrap my head around it. But I, I just, I, I did not. It wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I wanted to hear, and I, I, I put it, I put it aside because it wasn't what I thought Black Sabbath was going to sound like. It makes sense in context. At the time, 1978. I mean, when you said that, you know these albums some of these albums weren't getting a lot of in-store promotion the reason that i got that was well once i you know all the kids in my neighborhood were we were getting away from kiss and we were all talking about you know the the cool heavy bands that we liked and i wanted to commit to liking black sabbath even though i hadn't really heard anything yet so it was i had to go get a black sabbath album so i could back it up but in that record store i mean it, black sabbath album came out and it was there was like a poster and the wall display and everything it was, it was hard to miss it yeah.
0: um nice well we'll, yeah. leave the, we'll leave the listeners there you go you got a little little teaser there you go i never say die episode which which will be coming up and we're we're, we're both looking forward I'm get, to be able to get too
1: too ahead of myself on that one
0: and we're looking forward to that as we look forward to every episode here so uh, we'd like to thank everybody for, for listening to our episodes, listening to this episode. It's a little special thing here for everybody out there. If maybe you're kind of wondering what me and Darren look like, want to put these voices to a face, uh, head on over. I have a YouTube channel called Layer of the Alchemist. Go on YouTube, type in Layer of the Alchemist, you'll find my channel. And I'm going to be putting up a little excerpt, a video excerpt from our session here for this video. So if you're interested, you can go over and check that out. But we appreciate everybody's support and we will be seeing everybody real soon for Never Say Die.